This season is made possible with the generous support of the Kimmel Shatsky Traumatic Brain Injury Innovation Fund. Hello and welcome to another episode of Injury is Not Equal. I'm your host, Shaylin, from the Center for Injury Prevention at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. We're on a mission to uncover the truths and realities about injury risk and impact. We're laying everything on the table as we engage in critical conversation in hopes to change the narrative and raise awareness about health inequity in injury. We hope you'll join us. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Traumatic brain injury often leads to complex cognitive, behavioral, and physical changes. These changes can have significant impact on cognition, executive functioning, interpersonal relationships, and employability. In addition, TBI can be a chronic and lifelong condition requiring long-term supports and healthcare costs that may not be covered. In turn, survivors of traumatic brain injury may be faced with considerable socioeconomic challenges. In today's episode, I am joined by Steve and Jay, who will be sharing their lived experience with traumatic brain injury and uncovering the socioeconomic realities. Steve sustained a catastrophic brain injury following a car crash in 2010. After spending many months in hospital and rehabilitation, Steve met his wife, Jay, who was an adventurous ski instructor at the time in Whistler, BC. After moving back to Toronto to get married, Jay sustained a brain injury herself while working as a sales associate. Together, Steve and Jay work hard to advocate for traumatic brain injury survivors and invisible disability. This is demonstrated through Jay's platform called Invisible Advocate, where she works with Steve, who is the video editor, to educate others about invisible injury through various forms of media. In addition, Steve is an injury ambassador with the Party Program, where he shares his story and discusses the importance of injury prevention with youth. Welcome, Steve and Jay, and thank you so much for joining me today. First and foremost, we asked Steve about his experience re-entering the workforce post-injury. We wanted to get a better understanding of the challenges that come along with the process. Steve explained to us that, for a number of reasons, he was not initially transparent with employers about his TBI. I was very much in denial, which is sort of a normal thing uh, with, with brain injury that it doesn't really get talked about. So I just wanted to get my life back to normal. So I applied to a bunch of jobs and I ended up getting selected for a job interview to be a supply teacher in England. They had to ask me about like, there was some time missing in my resume, right? Because, because I'd spent sort of a year trying to recover. So they asked about the missing time on my resume and I uh, sort of glossed over it by telling them I was in a car accident. I didn't tell them about the brain injury until... Like I was experiencing some problems with like memory and like getting to work on time and uh, other things after I'd already been in England for a couple months. And that's, that's when I told them about the brain injury. The hours didn't seem difficult to manage at first, I think because I was in denial. Um, but then over the next few months, like it just became harder and harder to manage my time. 
and you you realize that things aren't going as easily for you as they used to. And anyway, I just ended up uh, flipping from job to job, but certain tasks were challenging, like remembering when I had to work, how to get there on public transit, and then like controlling my emotions with difficult children all of a sudden was a lot harder. So I ended up not being asked back in like in the same position. I had like a pretty good contract where I was guaranteed teaching days and, and I couldn't get that back. And I don't know if it's because I disclosed it or if it's just because of my performance. I My relationships with like coworkers and stuff seemed fine at the time. Um, in hindsight, like I, I, I was at problems taking direction. Uh, I wasn't good at taking instructions and, and not being in charge. Like I always tried to put myself in charge, which uh, in hindsight wasn't the best idea. And then um, choosing not to disclose. Um, some employers knew uh, about my brain injury. Most didn't. I uh, didn't really feel comfortable telling people uh, for fear of judgment. Brain injury, it sounds really scary and it sounds really uh, hard to understand. And I guess I didn't want to deal with that. I, I do have a degree in HR and I eventually remembered that like employees are protected against discrimination, but only if they disclose their disability first. So I started to do that. I don't know if that was the reason, but opportunity did sort of seem to dry up. So then I stopped working, I guess, because my life outside of work was derailing. I couldn't really manage family life um, and working at the same time. Jay was picking up a lot of slack um, and I wasn't really aware of that until she hurt herself and all of a sudden no one was picking up my slack. So I made the decision to, to step back and sort of engage in some more rehab and work on myself a little more. So that gave us a glimpse into the effects of TBI on individuals at work. It even explains why many stop working altogether. But what happens after that point? Steve experienced a number of struggles during the process. So not being able to work like in the classical capacity has been really difficult. It's like socially, it's been really difficult to not be employed. There's, there's a... It's a lot of judgment from people who don't understand like the ongoing limitations that uh, brain injury have or the concept of invisible disability. So socially it's tough. Psychologically, like it's really hard to find meaning in, in your life without a job because uh, that's sort of like becomes such an essential part of you. Financially, it's been pretty devastating. Before I crashed, like I was trained as a teacher um, and I had usually made like a livable income no matter where I worked. And so we burned through our savings uh, after Jay hit her head. And then we ended up having to spend some time on, uh, on welfare and the Ontario Disability Support Program, which uh, I think it's a misnomer. Like there's no support there uh, and it's not really livable. So then after my small settlement, I had a small insurance settlement. It didn't really go the way that was expected because even my own lawyers had a, had a problem believing that I couldn't work. So after that settlement, we've had to use like the, the money that I was given through that settlement for like my medical expenses for the rest of my life uh, to also pay for Jay's therapy and medications and stuff. Uh, since she hurt herself because 
she doesn't have the support from the uh, workers' compensation system. I, I just I think it's important to add too that the way that disability is structured is that uh, people on disability, even in, in the insurance world, are like the short-term disability or long-term disability or workers' comp are always structured into substantially less than they were earning before. And it doesn't keep up as the years go on. And research has actually shown that people with disabilities, uh, their cost of living is about 40% higher than it was before they hurt themselves. And so to be structured to be living on substantially less when now your cost of living has increased has made it like extremely difficult, not only for us, but for like the thousands and millions of other people that are struggling with disability. That was Jay, Steve's wife. Even prior to Jay's TBI, she was witness to the struggles Steve faced day to day and at work. We asked Steve about some of those struggles and what supports should be offered. During my recovery and after I came out of denial, like my lawyers, obviously the lawyers, because they just want to be paid, but like the therapists and all the doctors and medical professionals that I was talking to said that I didn't have the ability to remain in the workforce. And then after I settled and had sort of a paltry settlement from my uh, insurance company, even though like all these medical professionals and therapists and everyone had been saying for years how I couldn't work, all of a sudden I was like still expected to like go out and get a job and and work in the classical sense of the word. It feels like just as my insurance company didn't believe me um, and my lawyers kind of messed up, then that meant that I could work really make sense. So I don't think we should be insisting that people work in the classical sense of the word, because it's just not feasible. I think there's a reason people are on social assistance. No one would choose to live such a terrible, unsupported lifestyle if they had the ability to sustain full employment. Like right now in Canada, people are choosing to die because it's more attractive than living, you know, with a disability, unsupported. But If you're going to talk about supports, I guess the biggest one is like realizing the unpredictability of brain injury. uh, And that's what makes us unreliable. There's not a lot of consistency. We don't know what each day is going to bring until the day is actually upon us. So I guess flexibility and scheduling is the most notable support, which seems to be hard for any employer to offer. In general, there seems to be this narrative where people with disabilities should be engaging in menial unrewarding work to make money for someone else. Um, It makes more sense to be encouraging meaningful activities that are flexible enough for people with disabilities to do. Uh, It's taken a lot of time and therapy for me to be able to feel like I'm contributing to society and life in general. I don't agree with this narrative and I I think that it needs to change. Remember Jay? We spoke with her next. To refresh your memory, she was working as a ski instructor before her injury occurred. She speaks similarly about her struggles with denial and understanding her own symptoms. It's difficult for brain injury survivors to accurately describe their injuries because it's the place of your body that actually helps describe what's wrong with you. If you hurt any other part of your body, it's your brain that describes it. So when you hurt that part, it takes a really long time to understand your symptoms and and what you're going through and what's affecting you. 
I had three ER visits in six weeks and I wasn't healing nearly as fast as I wanted to or expected to. And then I, uh, I went through some denial and tried to return to work as a ski instructor in Ontario. And I lasted about 30 days over the course of five months because I was uh, so fatigued and my symptoms were flaring up so much that I, uh, I just like, I couldn't work more than a couple of days a week. And then uh, I tried to get some work with uh, like with camps and stuff. Cause I thought maybe that would be a better solution. I think it's really uh, typical brain injury survivors or people with disabilities to just to try and go back to what really was easy and what worked before. So that's what I was doing. And when I started applying for camp roles and stuff, and I couldn't, I couldn't really get through the interviews without my symptoms flaring up, or I couldn't even really make it to the interview because my symptoms were so bad. So that's when I uh, decided to take a step back from trying to work. So there's no definitive answer for brain injury, but I tried anyway. And I attempted a bunch of different therapies, like physio, vision, and a lot of others. And I, tr- I was on a lot of medication and I saw a lot of doctors and it kind of made everything worse and ended up in a dark place. And there's a, a lot of people that like to claim that they can fix brain injury and you just have to commit to going through tough things and then you'll be fine. And it was making me so much worse and I couldn't participate in anything except for like the few hours of therapy a week. And it was just, it was overwhelming. So then I took a step back from that and decided to focus on what worked best for me. And then as a result, I started becoming more mentally stable. I started understanding what worked and what didn't. I, I like to use the line that brain injuries are like fingerprints and snowflakes. Each one is unique to itself. And I think that that's the most like healthy way to kind of approach brain injury and, and recovery is like doing what works for you and treating it like a fingerprint or a snowflake and knowing that there's no definitive concrete set of pathways to get better. You just have to do what works best for you to have your best version of your life. So TBI symptoms, course of action, and lasting impacts vary from person to person. We talked to Jay about society's misconceptions of disability and how her own perspective has shifted since acquiring her TBI. I think having a head injury has really taught me that society has a really gross misunderstanding of disability. And before my injury, I also had this deep misconception about disability. And uh, I've come to realize that we live in a very visual world and we very much just believe what we see, which is like really damaging for people with invisible challenges. The reality is, is that people with visible and invisible disabilities deal with so much more than what we present and what we see. And even, you know, when we see people with visible disabilities, there's so much more that they're dealing with that we're not seeing, but we just, we see a visual and we're like, we'll just put them in that category. So we tend to judge people based on their activities when they're out participating in society. And we neglect to realize that when people are at home or not being seen, that there's a lot of struggle and there's a lot of preparation and a lot of recovery that goes into participating in activities. It's kind of like, I like to refer to it as like the highlight reels of social media. And like, that's kind of like the problem with societies where like we flip through these like highlight reels and that's the life that we picture that person living. And there's so much more than the highlight reel. And I guess like when you see people out with disabilities, like that's their highlight reel. 
And we're not really acknowledging that there's so much more behind the highlight reel. And there's so much effort and energy put into just being out there. And then so much recovery when you come home. Yeah, there's a lot of stigma because, you know, people see us out and people are like, oh, well, you're doing this, so you should be able to work. Oh, you're doing this, so you should be able to be a full-time employee somewhere. And it's uh, it's incredibly hurtful and uh, it's incredibly frustrating because all of your medical professionals and the people treating you and that understand brain injury don't think that you can work and know that you can't sustain employment. But people without any of these designations and understanding of brain injury are the ones that are quickest to judge you. Because I like present really well and I look athletic on the outside, people presume I'm capable of sustaining full-time employment and question why I can't work anymore. Many people seem to think I've just given up on life. And the reality is that like, I'm trying really hard. We have this misconception that unless people with disabilities are working, they should be living in a dark and quiet life. That's really ableist to not support anything than traditional employment. We should be empowering people to live the best version of their lives, whether or not they can sustain work. Often people brush off our symptoms and severity without a true understanding of how debilitating they can be. People say, like, I get headaches too, or I get tired too. And they don't, they don't really understand the gravitas of what we're struggling with symptom-wise. And people believe that once you gain some compensatory strategies, that those are a fix. And then as a result, anyone can participate in the workforce where that's truly false. And compensatory strategies just really help improve the quality of life, but they don't make up for all the deficits. You know, like I feel like outside of my medical professionals and therapists and like a small handful of friends and family that it really feels that I'm constantly just explaining my brain injury due to the severe lack of awareness. And what people don't realize is that with brain injury, milestones achieved are not necessarily milestones sustained. Unfortunately, Jay's experience with outsider doubt is common among individuals with invisible injuries. With that being said, we wanted to know just how far this issue penetrated. Specifically, how TBI has impacted Steve and Jay's ability to access services and support. So like, because I hurt myself at work, I had to rely on workers' compensation, which is a system that's very much designed to protect the employer and not the injured worker. As a result, my access to supportive services weren't there at all. Like I watched Steve have an entire team rally around him. And I had the opposite where I had all of these professionals in the medical community. And uh, we were all just trying to get my, like get support from WSIB. Like workers' compensation was actively trying to deny my claim and actively trying to shut down my disability. Well, the doctors and therapists in the community that their only job is to look after my health and well-being were saying one thing and the workers comp was saying another. In case you're wondering, WSIB is the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board. They're the ones in charge of providing wage loss benefits, medical coverage, and support to help people get back to work after a work-related injury or illness. However, accessing this support comes with challenges, especially for TBI survivors. You know, like just fighting to get my injury accepted, just and like I've seen multiple neurologists and I'm eight and a half years out of my injury. 
I'm fighting for 85% of minimum wage from 2014. That's how terrible our system is, is that minimum wage is like the lowest wage that you should be expected to live on in society. And that's even really argued that the number isn't where it should be. And as I touched on earlier, the people with disabilities require a higher cost of living. But even when you're paid minimum wage, you're still paid 85% of minimum wage from the year that you got hurt, which is like ludicrous. I don't, I don't understand how you're expected to live on that if you're well and able, never along with a lot of disabilities. So we've spent like thousands of dollars on therapies and medications and legal bills. And WSIB is still actively trying to deny my claim. And we're in, the, we're in an appeal section right now. I was sent to a to an assessment center run by WSIB, and they too agreed that I couldn't sustain work, and WSIB still denied my claim. And uh, they actually called that assessment center and asked them to reverse their decision. So as a result, we're still in this crazy battle eight and a half years later. And if I was taken care of right from the beginning, I would be living a much more supported life. And I wouldn't have this overarching, like constantly having to prove that I'm disabled. Wow. Eight and a half years later and still fighting for basic rights and compensation. Clearly, a number of issues here require further discussion. Jay and Steve have done lots of advocacy work and recently started their project called Invisible Advocate. Invisible Advocate aims to break down barriers and misconceptions surrounding invisible disability. In Ontario, uh, injured workers within five years of their permanent injury are on or below the poverty line within five years of being injured. That's 50% of all injured workers. And I guess like, because my fight has gone on for so long and I was really part of that group of people that really misunderstood disability before I, I really wanted to like highlight a better understanding of disability through the invisible advocates. So like after everything that I've been through, I wanted to create a platform to highlight invisible disability. So people close to me and society could understand what I was dealing with, like a more than just my brain injury and what happened to me. And I wanted people to understand that there's so much more than what they see. People with disabilities should be empowered to live a full, happy, contributive life without being relegated into misery and like unproved therapies. Invisible advocates about showing how like the symptoms I experience affect me, how brain injury is different for different people. It's about showing how there's more to life than just living like a lab rat. It's about showing how we live life despite our brain injuries. And we want to educate others about the spectrum of brain injury. It's not a linear thing. You know, as as human beings, we actually know more about the universe than we do about the human brain. And and just to, to understand that there's so much that we need to know and to be humble about that approach, I think is really important. You know, neuroplasticity can be built by trying new life experiences and doing things that make you happy and participating in, in life and not having to sit and do exercises with a therapist. And I think that was kind of, you know, a lot of people judge Steve and I and how we live our lives because they don't understand invisible disability. And kind of like both of us have mentioned earlier in this podcast is that we can't sustain employment, but like we like to participate in activities when we can. And I, and I just wanted a platform to show people 
that, you know, we're more than just one thing. We've been told that since we were growing up is don't judge a book by a cover. And I feel like we do that more now than we did back then. So Invisible Advocate was really just to, to try and, and, and bring that to light. On the topic of Invisible Advocate, Steve and Jay just embarked on a road trip to California as part of their advocacy work. As Jay just mentioned, experiences like these can double as therapy. Steve and Jay see the benefit of recovering this way while having fun and building memories along the way. Having my brain injury hasn't, and Steve, like it hasn't taken our love for things like traveling and new experiences and adventures. It's just changed our way of approaching it. And and those things are now more challenging to do, but they're not unattainable. Uh, Our doctors and medical professionals were very supportive of us, have over the years have been really supportive of us traveling because it helps work on our planning skills and organizing skills. And it's something that we've both been affected by post-injury. So to keep building those skills and to have something to look forward to is really important. Uh, And it helps break up our routine, which is also really important for neuroplasticity. And it's really good for our mental health. So it took us a while to build up to this this trip. It was a three-month trip. And the reason why it took so long is because we only have a capacity to drive so far. And we have to recover once we get to that place. So we, we knew that getting to California would take us a long time. We, we built on the California trip by starting small trips around Ontario. And then a few years ago, before the pandemic, we took a three-week trip to Florida. And that was really beneficial. Like our doctors saw the benefits of our mental health and excitement that we had looking forward to the trip and how we had to learn how to work through different obstacles that were handed to us. But it was also the reason why I was denied benefits. Uh, Workers' compensation said that I was faking my light sensitivity because I traveled to a sunny destination. And uh, both us and our doctors and therapists all thought that was ludicrous. And they also used the idea of the California trip as like the sunny destination as a reason why I could work. And again, that doesn't, that doesn't pair up because milestones achieved aren't milestones sustained and traveling doesn't equal work. So it was our reason to take the Invisible Advocate on the road. We wanted to document the breadth of the travels and our, how we have tough days and what we get up to when we travel. A lot of days turned into recovery days instead of big traveling adventures. But we, our goal was to really just shake the perception of disability in society, to show people that it doesn't look like any one thing. It's not linear. It's a spectrum. And we need to broaden our views and empower people with disabilities to live their best life. As we get older, our health naturally declines unless we work on it. And brain injuries are more susceptible to things like dementia. So we needed to work on, like, we need to work more and harder on gaining new experiences and building new neural pathways in any way that we can. And each person has different ways of doing this. So decided to to document it. And I think before the injury, we would have been out at nighttime. Uh, We would have driven further distances and gone on more hikes and taken more challenging routes. But we did this trip the best way that it worked for us. You know, people with disabilities should be able to travel because it's great for people without disabilities. Why wouldn't it be good for people with disabilities? And we just, we need to make this world more accessible and inclusive and like less judgy about things that we don't know. We're like really quick to create a narrative based on just a few visuals 
and uh, or a few pieces of information when we don't know the whole story. And we really need to, to be more humble about our approach to people with disabilities. Before we continue, you might be wondering about neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity refers to the brain's ability to change and heal itself. It does this by reorganizing its structure, functions, or connections after an injury. This reorganization happens in response to learning and experiences. So traveling has been great for Steve and Jay. We're about to hear more from the two of them together. I think it was just, it was really therapeutic as, as well as, um, like, yeah, it was a trip of a lifetime, but I think it, it was really therapeutic in that it really helped with our neuroplasticity. It gave us lot, lots of exposure to like new things, which people with brain injuries don't have if they're just sitting at home. And it's actually really important to be exposed to those new things because if we get put into this like small box to create this, these patterns over and over and over again, then we don't actually get to build those neural pathways and make our brain stronger. And uh, I think, you know, like we, it was a constant thing on this trip to talk about how we would have approached this if we weren't brain injured, because we like to compare ourselves often to the old version of ourselves and like, oh, I would have wanted to do that hike instead of the one that we're doing, or, oh, it would have been nice to do this activity instead of, you know, having to be home and, and rest. And then we also talked about like, you know, <laughs> we would uh, finish a leg and we'd be moving on to the next leg. And we'd be like, I'm still very brain injured because I'm feeling very anxious about moving from one place to the other because brain injury survivors don't love change. And so to change locations every few days was was quite a bit for us, but, uh, it really, I think helped us grow quite a bit. And I, I really like, think it's so important if we can empower people with disabilities to travel more, there's so much benefit. And we, we didn't want to just accept, I don't believe what WSIB is saying. That's why I've been fighting so aggressively against them. And neither do my doctors or therapists. And I think that's why we really thought, let's just document it and take it on the road and really open up the awareness of traveling with disability. I think that there's just, there's such a, like, if we had a definitive answer for brain injuries, things like the NFL and the NHL and all the, like the major sports franchises, we wouldn't have these problems with brain injury. They would just be like, we would approach them like a, a broken arm and, well, some people are trying to approach it like a broken arm. It's not like that. And as I mentioned before, they're like fingerprints and snowflakes. Everyone's unique to itself. And we need to stop trying to create this box of definitive answers when there isn't one. Thank you so much, Steve and Jay, for joining me today for this very important and informative discussion. I appreciate your willingness to be open with our listeners by sharing your stories and experiences with traumatic brain injury. For our listeners who would like to learn more about Invisible Advocate, the links and handles can be found in the show notes of this episode. We encourage you to give our podcast a follow so you can be updated when new episodes are released. Stay tuned for episode two, where I sit down with professionals Nicole Cross and Julie Osbelt to discuss access to specialized services in neurorehabilitation for survivors of traumatic brain injury. 